The following message was given by Dr. Ron Walborn at Refocus 2018, Awaken to the Spirit. Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the first night of our 2018 uh, Refocus gathering. I really believe very firmly that God wants to use this weekend to um, really awaken each one of us to the work of, of His Holy Spirit in our lives. And um, I think, you know, the older we get in our faith, um, unfortunately, often we can sort of put God in a box. And I, I think God wants to really break out of that box of our own imagining and show us that He is so much more than even what we imagine. And I think um, that it's going to be largely through the servant of God that He has brought to us this weekend. Uh, and I want to introduce him to you. Um, his name is Dr. Uh, Ronald Walburn. And uh, as you guys may know or actually may not know, uh, both ICC as well as Harvest uh, has our roots in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And so in some ways by having Dr. Walburn come and speak to us, we're kind of going back to our roots. Uh, Dr. Walburn is the Dean of Alliance Theological Seminary and College of Bible and Christian Ministry at Nyack College out in New York. He's been on the faculty at Nyack at ATS since uh, 1999, and he also serves on the board of directors for the Christian and Missionary Alliance. He's originally from Western Pennsylvania, where his uh, father was also a CNMA pastor. Uh, he obtained his BA uh, through Nyack as well as his MDiv through uh, ATS, and uh, got his doctorate at Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Walburn has uh, pastored a number of different alliance churches over the years and is also um, a nationally as well as an international speaker at various conferences at gatherings. Uh, he's married and has uh, four adult children and as well as a, as a granddaughter and I don't know if all of that is current information, but I just got it off the uh, ATS website, and so he can clarify if anything is off. But uh, I really believe he's the man of God and the messenger of God for us this weekend. And so why don't we welcome him with a warm applause as he comes to minister to his word. Thank you, Steve. Well, hello, Chicago. Um, now, he mentioned that I'm from Western PA, Pittsburgh, originally. And um, any Cubs fans here? Okay, just you know, the Pittsburgh Pirates have stunk for over 20 years. And when we finally get good and the Cardinals get a little bad, you guys have to emerge and win a World Series. And, uh, anyhow, so I forgive you. Um, I had to really process a lot of grieving and stuff as I came into Chicago. And I understand you're a congregation that gets dealing with that kind of stuff. And so... I'm still being healed. Um, yeah, this is, uh, I don't know if you can put that uh, slide up again. Yeah, that's my wife, Wanda, right there. Uh, she is also Dr. Walborn. We're a paradox. Um, and uh, she has a doctorate in uh, spiritual formation in an intercultural setting uh, from Western Seminary. She's the director of spiritual formation at uh, Nyack College uh, in, in Rockland County. And, um, and this is kind of a cool weekend because we flew out together. She flew out to Cleveland. I flew here. She's doing a women's retreat with our youngest daughter. They're team teaching together. And it's the first time they've ever done anything like that. And so it's, it's really cool. I kind of wish I could sneak in the back and hear my daughter and my, my wife teach together, but they promised to tape it for me. So, yeah, I'm at Alliance Theological Seminary. We have a campus in Rockland County. Uh, we have a campus in New York City, about a block from Battery Park, and uh, then we have a campus in uh, Puerto Rico. I'm, I'm kind of representing Puerto Rico here, uh, and I'm doing it on purpose tonight. It says STPR, that's Seminario Teleologico de Puerto Rico. I say that like a gringo. I apologize, <laughs> but y y you guys would be worse than me probably because you're from Chicago, okay? Um, but I, I'm wearing this tonight on purpose because I'd, I'd really like you to pray uh, with me for Puerto Rico because you know what they've been through in terms of the hurricanes. Uh, we had record enrollment down there at our campus, 212 students, and that hurricane just about wiped us out. 
Um, but God, in his provision, uh, provided about sixty, seventy thousand dollars 70000 We were able to get them a generator, and, uh, and 190 students out of the 212 they started with have now returned. And God's doing a work in Puerto Rico. So just when you think of it, pray for Puerto Rico. Pray for Alliance Theological Seminary down in Puerto Rico. Um, hey, it's great to be with you. Um, I want to start with a story that will set us up for the weekend, and then we'll pray, and we'll launch into what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, This is a true story. It happened a few years ago. I went golfing. Any golfers here? A few golfers, okay. Uh, I went golfing um, on a Saturday with my pastor and another professor from Nyack, and uh, we were out golfing. We're getting ready to start our round, and uh, they put a young man with us. They said, hey, would you guys mind if this guy Mike played along with you? We said, no, no problem. And we introduced ourselves. And I didn't say, hi, I'm, you know, the right Reverend Dr. Dean Walborn, and my pastor didn't say he was a pastor. On the golf course, you're just first names, okay? So we introduce ourselves and we start golfing. Well, we quickly learned a few things about this young man. First of all, he was the worst golfer we'd ever played with. <laughs> this guy was terrible. Um, and, uh, I mean, he was covering more real estate on that golf course than anybody had ever played the course before. And the other thing about him was he was uh, the most gifted and prolific cursor and swearer <laughs> I'd ever play with. He was using words in such creative manner that I was taking notes on my scorecard. It was just a, it was kind of inspiring initially. And, um, and he's cursing, he's swearing, he's taking the Lord's name in vain. And uh, by about the fourth or fifth hole, it was kind of ruining the day. And, um, and, and I have experienced Christians kind of confront that kind of behavior. And they go head on, they try to con- win the battle for behavior by confronting it head on. Well, the problem is, is that when you do that, you almost never win the battle for a person's heart. And so, uh, you know, I started to pray, Lord, how do I confront this? What do I do? On about the fifth or sixth hole, I got an idea. And, um, and, and as he was getting ready to tee off, his name was Mike, Um, I said to him, hey, Mike, have you considered that you're praying the wrong prayer? And he looks at me and he goes, what the bleep are you talking about? You know, I don't believe in God, so why would I pray? And I go, well, you're you're praying and it's working for you. He goes, what? What are you talking about? How am I praying? I said, well, every time you say, God damn it, he does. (laughs) The ball goes into the water, into the woods, you know. He goes, look, I don't know anything about God. Is that a prayer? I go, yep, and it's working. He said, well, what should I pray? I said, why don't you try God bless it? He said, would that work? I said, it can't hurt. You're terrible. You know, you might as well try. I mean, he goes, all right. So he, he, he leans over his ball, and, and he looks back at me, and he looks at the ball, and he goes, God bless it? It was more of a question than a prayer, you know? And he looks back at me, and I give him a thumbs up like this. And when he turns to hit the ball, I start praying, oh, God. We need a miracle. Man, I was binding and loosing. I was uh, coming against the spirit of bad golf in Jesus' name. You know, I was doing everything I knew to do. And, uh, and, and he swings and he hits the ball and it went straight down the fairway, the best drive of the day. I mean, it was, seriously, it was a miracle, okay? And he turns and he looks at me and he's shaking. He's white as a ghost. And he goes, you're, you're in touch with the supernatural. And I, in my best John Wayne voice, I went, yes, I am. But then the real miracle happened, guys, because that guy looked at us and he goes, are you guys Christians? We go, yeah. And he goes, could I ask you some questions? Because I've had some questions about God for a long time. And when I try to talk to my Christian friends, all I get from them is that I'm a dirty, rotten, no good sinner. I'm going to hell, that I have sin in my life. And I know all that, but I've got some questions about God and I've got some questions about church. And over the next few holes, that young man opened up his heart to us. And he started just asking question after question after question. And by the time we got to the 18th hole, I wish I could tell you that, you know, he sunk a birdie putt, fell on his knees, received Jesus as his Savior. (laughs) The story doesn't end that way. But what happened was he came up to us after we finished golfing. And I went to shake his hand and he pushed my hand away and he grabbed me and he hugged me which you don't hug on a golf course. Men men don't do that, okay? So he hugs me, and he goes, I want to thank you because I learned more about God today than I have the rest of my life. Now, 
Folks, successful evangelism is not just getting someone to pray a prayer or sign a card. It's getting someone one step closer to Jesus. And I think what's critical is that we find ways not to focus on people's behavior, but we've got to learn to get beneath the surface and win the battle for the heart. Because you might win the battle for behavior, and it's a short-term victory, but unless we can get beneath the behavior and find pathways to the heart, we're never going to have life change, eternal significance, the gospel transformation that we're looking for. So uh, this weekend, we're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit tomorrow. We're going to talk about healing tomorrow night. Uh, We're going to talk more about the Holy Spirit on Sunday morning. Uh, Tonight, we're going to talk about how we need a paradigm shift in order to recapture our spiritual perception. But I want you to know something. My goal in all of this is that we would become a people who know how to get beneath the surface and win the battle for people's hearts so that the gospel can take root and transform them forever. And, and so I want you to keep that story in mind, that concept of learning to win the battle for the heart, because everything else is just window dressing if we don't win the hearts of this next generation. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, as we begin this weekend, we invite your Holy Spirit to move, to work, to, uh, to awaken us in places where we have been slumbering, to begin to stir us, Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you have more for us. And I pray that this weekend would be a moment where you pour out more on us. We invite you now, do anything you need to do in us that you might do everything you want to do through us. And Lord, we, we say it again, do anything you need to do in us that you might do everything you want to do through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It was about 20 years ago now, I, I took a trip to Lima, Peru with about 20 other pastors and we were going down there to do some leadership training, to do some outreach. And, um, and uh, w- one of these days I was uh, preaching at a church and I gave an invitation. And I'll, I'll tell you more about this story tomorrow night. But there was a, a young nine-year-old girl who was blind, visually impaired, and she was healed that night in the service. It was incredible. And, and that week, we not only saw that, and I'll tell you more about that story tomorrow night, but uh, we saw deaf ears open. We saw uh, several people that had been lame and unable to walk healed instantly. We saw amazing miracles down in Lima, Peru. And I was pastoring in California at the time, and, and when we were flying home from that week, I was having a conversation with God because I was both happy and I was upset. I was certainly happy for all we had seen God do, but I was upset that that kind of stuff wasn't happening in my church in California. You know how it is? You go on these mission trips and God does all this crazy stuff and then you come back home and it's just not the same. And so on this flight back, I'm having a conversation. I'm like, that was awesome. That was really cool. But God, it would be nice if you would do this kind of stuff in America because we're trying to help you here. We're doing the best we can to expand the kingdom, to grow your kingdom, to set the captives free, and, and we could use a little of this New Testament stuff. And so I'm having this conversation, and I wasn't being particularly reverent, because I learned to pray from Moses, and he wasn't reverent. He was very sarcastic at times, and I think God likes that. And, um, and so I'm having this conversation, and, and the Lord speaks to me about the people in Peru. And he said, those people, They have nothing. They have access to no medicine. They have no access to medical care. Um, I am their only hope. I'm all they have. But you, you have access to so many other things. And you know what? You have taken opportunity to go to all those other things before you come to me. And the truth is, you want to know why you're not seeing a lot? Because in America, I have become the God of the last resort. Now, what I sensed in my spirit wasn't that God was anti-medicine or anti-doctor. I I think he uses all kinds of stuff to touch and heal people. But what I did sense was that in our culture, we have begun to go to everything else before we go to God. And as, as a result, it's affected our spiritual worldview, our spiritual perception, and dare I say, our experience of spiritual power. Tonight, I want to talk to you about, it's a title that's a little weird. It's Modernity and Worldview, 
and their impact on spiritual power. Uh, Another way of putting it is modernity, the last 500 years that we've been living is is known as the modern era, modernity, and I'll unpack that a little bit more in a minute. And then our Western rational worldview, scientific naturalistic worldview, that's what we're talking about. And how have those things impacted our spiritual perception, our ability to discern in the spirit, see in the spirit, and experience spiritual power? And, and I, I think it's impacted us more than we realize. And I think as a result, often God has become the God of the last resort. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, I always read that verse with a very eschatological kind of, uh, you know, interpretation, hermeneutic, which said, oh, God, I want to get pure someday. I want to get holy so that when I die, I go to heaven and see you kind of an end times interpretation of that verse. But I think Jesus had something much more immediate in mind. In fact, I want to suggest that when Jesus said that, what he meant was this, blessed are the pure, the undivided and unencumbered in heart, for they will perceive the presence of God wherever they are in the present moment. You see, it's not about someday being in his presence. It is about being God perceivers right now in the here and now. And, and I, I have to believe it's not just sin that's our trouble. Because I, I think that even on our best days, we have been impacted by the times in which we've been soaking, the season in which we've been living, and it has affected our ability to perceive the presence of God. Now, you know this theologically. Paul told us that the uh, invisible realm is more real than the visible realm. In fact, right now, if you turn to the person next to you and poke them in the shoulder, go ahead, do that. Just be nice. Don't hurt them, okay? All right. You may have very well stuck your finger through an angel that's in between you, okay? Why? Because there's an angelic host here tonight. They come when the redeemed come together. They, they kind of love your praise gatherings, okay? So there's angels here. Now, it's a good possibility there might be some demonic spirits here too. We bind you in the name of Jesus. Leave us alone. No confusion here. Because... Paul said that the invisible realm is more real than the visible realm. But I'm not sure we often live that way with that understanding of reality. And we certainly know that the presence of God is in this place. And so the question is this, how did we lose our spiritual perception, our spiritual sensitivity, and for that matter, our experience of his power? You see, I grew up in church pastor, you know, told you, Steve, that I, that I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. My favorite week of the year in church was missionary convention. Did you guys ever have missionary convention? When the missionaries would show up from Africa and Irian Jaya and all these places, and they'd share stories about, you know, people coming to Christ and getting free demons and burning their idols and people getting healed. Like you heard stories like sounding like the New Testament. And I can remember as a kid going to my dad saying, hey, if you could get some of that stuff going on here in Western PA, this church would grow. <laughs> and, and he looked at me like, you know, you're a weird kid. And I, and I was a weird kid. But I was on to something. Because in some ways, the Christianity that we have been living does not look a lot like the New Testament. And I've often wondered, why is that? Let's, let's talk about this for a minute. Uh, I want to give you a bit of a historical overview. Now, I, I want to apologize in advance. About the next 15 minutes, it's going to feel like you're in seminary. I know I'm a seminary dean, but I promise that we're going to get extremely practical uh, on this issue. But I, I want to set kind of a foundation for this concept of modernity and also the concept of what does worldview have to do with this. So by way of historical overview, um, prior to 2500 BC, we do not have written history. The Sumerians invented writing at about 2500, and that's where recorded history begins. So prior to that time, we have records from archaeology, we have oral history, but um, it's in 2500 that ancient history begins. And, uh, and I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but from 2,500 to 500, it's the era of the great empires. You know, you studied it when you took ancient history in college. You know, it's, it's the era of the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And of course, that's the era in which the Old Testament events occurred, as well as the New Testament events, okay? And so each time there's a shift in our world, often there's something that we can point to that shifts the epic or the era. 
And in this case, I think the shift came at around 325. These things are not always exact in terms of the dates. But in 325, you'll remember there was a Roman emperor by the name of Constantine. And he saw the sign of the cross, and he sent his army out with this commission, under this sign, we will conquer. And when they had a great victory, he switched the Roman Empire to Christianity as the state religion. And, and, and so what happens is we have a shift from what's known as the ancient world to the medieval world. Now, a couple things on this. Initially, you might think, well, that's a good thing. Christianity is no longer persecuted. They're not being burned at the stake. Uh, it's now the state religion. But there's a problem, too. Because what happens is Christianity goes from being incarnational where we had to live out our faith like salt and light in a world that was antagonistic toward our message, and we had a prophetic voice and a prophetic mission, until now in the medieval world, suddenly we become attractional in our orientation. Now we can build our cathedrals and our churches, and instead of going into the world to be salt and light, we tell the world, you come to us. And what we're still suffering from is this consumer Christianity where we put on a good show on Sunday and people show up. And by the way, what consumer Christianity produces is a lot of passive disciples who, when they're not entertained sufficiently by the worship and by the ministry or the children's ministry, they take their money and go elsewhere and buy a better sermon or buy a better ministry, and it creates a passivity. And so we're still suffering the effects of that. And by the way, that transition to Christendom where Christianity gets in bed with the state uh, creates one of the dark periods of Christian history where the most well-known mission trips from that era are the Crusades, okay? And so it's not a bright spot in Christian or church history. So then around 1500, there comes an invention that switches things again. Anybody know what was invented about 1500? Yep, Chicago's smart. Um, one time in New York, somebody yelled, uh, the catapult. <laughs> um, I, I, I was good. I didn't say anything, but I just told you. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the printing press comes along, and so the shift occurs from the medieval world to the modern world. All right, now here's the thing about the church and changes in history. We don't do well with change as the church. And so when this shift comes, you would think, wow, the printing press, what a wonderful invention for the church. We can print the Bible in the language of the people. Everybody can learn to read and read it themselves. No, this is not good news for the church. Because prior to modernity and the enlightenment and the coming of rationalism and, and, and all that comes with that, the clergy were the only ones in every village that knew how to read. And so if people wanted to know what the Bible said, they had to come to church to find out what the Bible said. And so now suddenly the church is losing control. And so we don't do well with change. And so when modernity begins, we fight it. The church fights it. In fact, we burn people at the stake for printing the Bible in the language of the people. And so when change comes, we resist, we fight. But then you know what happens? We learn to accommodate and we get more and more comfortable. In fact, you know what? During the last 500 years, Christianity became known as the religion of the book, which it was not known as that before. And suddenly, this growing rationalism, the enlightenment, modernity, begins to shape Christianity, and we got not only get comfortable with it, so what happens is we begin to think that Christianity is mixed together with the characteristics of that era. So right now, I'll give you an example of this, we're living through a shift into post-modernity. Um, and, and I don't want you to raise your hands because it, all of us have heard lectures or even sermons or famous Christian apologists rail against the evils of post-modernity and talk about how we've got to return to the rational laws of logic of modernity. In fact, we had a famous apologist come to the seminary and he was going off on the evils of post-modernity, how postmoderns don't believe in ultimate truth. And that's not entirely true. Most Christian postmoderns believe in ultimate truth. They're just not sure they have a corner on knowing what it is. And it sounds to me like a little humility as opposed to arrogance. And so he's railing on this. And all of a sudden, one of my students raises his hand. And I'm not going to tell you who this apologist was. 
I don't want to, because you would know him. And, uh, and I was a little nervous when my student raised his hand and he says, Dr. So-and-so, it, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that a postmodern has to first convert to modernity and then they can convert to Christianity. And to our surprise, this apologist said, that's exactly what I'm saying. And at that point, he lost the crowd because our students have been taught that not only is Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever, but he's the God of all eras, all epics, and all of these things, here's what they have in com- common. They're all fallen and they can't get up. And Jesus is able to save people entirely from any era without having to transplant them to another era or an epic. So, I, I mean, we could spend some time talking about postmodernity because it's fallen too. It's going to have problems. But I want to talk for a minute about how modernity has affected us. Because over the last 500 years, it's affected philosophy and theology. And first of all, what's happened over the last 500 years is we've had a movement in our culture, in our world, from theism to deism to naturalism. Now let me define those terms for you. Theism is a belief in a God who created everything that exists and he's still intimately involved in that creation. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God you and I believe in and worship. He is the creator. He is still here. He is still involved. But during the last 500 years, as we began to uncover scientific law and the reasons behind why things happen, uh, what's occurred is we've shifted to a deistic view of God, a God who created everything that exists, set up certain natural laws, and left. He's now uninvolved in his creation. You see, what happened is during modernity, we began to discover the scientific reasons behind things, and it was no longer necessary to have a creator, a God behind it. But you know what? Grandma believed in God, so we like to keep the idea of God out there somewhere, and so deism began to emerge. But here's the problem with deism. It's not a stable worldview. Uh, In his book, The Universe Next Door, James Sire does a phenomenal job of showing how deism is a mixture of some theism and a mixture of naturalism. And naturalism is man is the measure and the measurer of all things. There is no God. So deism isn't stable. And so you can't stay there for long. You're either going to have to jettison the idea of God altogether and embrace naturalism, or you're going to have to go back to a God who is here who is intimately involved in his creation. It's not a stable worldview. And so over the last 500 years, we've seen this movement, and this increased naturalism has now culminated in a growth of what I call the God is dead philosophy and the resultant nihilism. And so most of you have observed the countless atheists that are emerging. And uh, on the New York Times bestseller list, there's increasing works of literature on that. In fact, the fastest growing religion in America is none. Not N-U-N, not Catholics, but N-O-N-E. No truth claim, no faith-based claim. It's grown from 5% to well over 10% in the last 10 years. And so uh, this God is dead philosophy uh, results in the fulfillment of a prophecy by the guy named Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky said, look, if in the world, if in a culture, God is dead, then everything will become permissible. And we are living in a day and age when this resultant uh, naturalism is causing everyone to basically say, you know what, then I'm going to do what is right in my own eyes. And they're not hiding anymore. They're not pretending anymore. If God is dead, then everything becomes permissible and we're seeing it happen in front of our eyes. Now here's the good news, church. The good news is this. Sinners are now living with more integrity than ever before. Now, you're you're laughing about that, but what I mean is you no longer have to guess who you're dealing with. You know, I, I was doing this talk one time in a church and this old lady on the front row, she goes, well, they make lousy neighbors. And I go, wait, wait, talk to me about that. Who were your neighbors before your current neighbors? She goes, well, my neighbors now, they're drug dealers and they're this and they're that and they're just horrible. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, have you shared Jesus with them? No, I'm afraid of them. Okay, granted, she was a dear old lady. And I said, tell me about your previous neighbors. She goes, oh, they were wonderful. They were such good people. Uh, they were Mormons. I go, oh, 
did you ever talk with them about Jesus? She goes, no, they voted with me. I went, wait a minute. You didn't talk to them about Jesus because they voted, and I was assuming Republican, and I don't think I was far off. And she said, no, I didn't want to offend them. I said, but do you understand that even nice people who don't don't know Jesus, who are deceived, are going to end up in hell? And she said, I've thought about that. Now, folks, here's the reality. We no longer have to guess what we're dealing with. Nobody's pretending anymore. Everybody is coming out of the closet. And to be honest, while it makes things uncomfortable in our culture, I think it's a good thing. It gives us a chance to stop focusing on behavior and win the battle for the heart. But in order to do that, we need the gospel at its full power and full strength. Well, um, that's philosophy, theology, but Christianity has been impacted in the last... 500 years too. Let me suggest this, that Christians over the last 500 years, and specifically the last 150, what we have done is we pick up the tools of an era and we begin to fight science with science. Now, I am not anti-Christian scientists, Christian medical doctors. I think that's wonderful. But here's what I want you to pick up on. When we begin to accommodate and begin to use the tools of an era or an epoch, a time period, we are subtly discipled into the thought patterns of that era and and forget that we are citizens of a higher kingdom and that our kingdom is not of this world and we begin to adjust to the times in which we live and it affects us. And so as a result, Western Christians, when I say Western, I mean U.S., the, the Western cultures, We say we are theists, but we live like deists. Now, what do I mean by that? We can pass a theology exam that God has created everything that exists. He's intimately involved in his creation, but we don't pray. And and we, we go to the doctor and the medicine cabinet and all the other options before we go to God. And again, he's become the God of the last resort. And what I want to suggest is we have been subtly discipled into a non-spiritual worldview where even if you're in church on Sunday and every time the doors are open, you are being discipled and mentored by modernity and scientific rationalism and Western naturalism uh, 24-7. And it has had an impact on us. Okay, And so the result is this naturalism has given birth to what I would call a rationalistic God-in-a-box theology. Now, what's God-in-a-box theology? You can go to seminaries all across this nation. I'm not going to name any. And you can learn a well-thought-out systematic theology as to why God no longer heals or why there are no longer miracles, or why we no longer need the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. And, and there are well-thought-out theologies explaining why God doesn't do that anymore. Let me give you an example. Here's a quote from a friend of mine. Um, he says this, There are many concepts that the church holds dear, desiring to maintain a devotion to Scripture. But some of these actually work against the true value of God's word. For example, many people who reject the move of the Holy Spirit have claimed that the church doesn't need signs and wonders or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we now have the Bible. Now, uh, let me kind of briefly give you the theology of that. That is known as cessationism. It believes that the gifts of the Spirit and signs and wonders and miracles and healing ceased when the canon of Scripture was closed. And I believe it's based mostly on a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 13 where it says um, that these gifts will cease when the perfect comes. And they define the perfect as the canon of Scripture. Why? Because the Scripture is inerrant. But if you keep reading in that passage, it says who the perfect is because it says, then we will see him face to face. Friends, the perfect is not a book. It's a person. His name is Jesus. And and here's the good news. When Jesus returns, guess what? We're not going to need healing. Why? Because we'll be with him. We won't need signs and wonders. Why? Because we will be with him. But I would argue that the church was always meant to be as supernatural as it was when Jesus was here on this earth launching his first disciples. This writer goes on and he says this, that teaching that we no longer need the gifts or signs and wonders contradicts the very word it seeks to exalt. If you assign 10 new believers, 
The task of studying the Bible to find God's heart for this generation, not one of them would conclude that spiritual gifts are not for today. You have to be taught that stuff. And look, look at this quote. The doctrine stating signs and wonders are no longer needed because we have the Bible was created by people who hadn't seen God's power and needed an explanation to justify their own powerless churches. Now that should make you say, ouch. Because uh, what my friend Bill is saying here is that when you live long enough without seeing the power of God and healing and the supernatural manifestations of God, you begin to develop a theology to explain why you are not experiencing that power to make you feel a little bit better about not seeing what you're not seeing on a regular basis. All right, now, let me go for this. I want to give you two definitions, and then we'll get incredibly practical. So first of all, worldview. Everybody has a worldview. Your worldview is a set of presuppositions which we hold about the basic makeup of our world. Now here's the thing. You and I don't even realize we have a worldview until it gets tweaked and challenged. So for instance, when I went down to Lima, Peru, uh, there was a church that asked me to preach at a 7 o'clock service on a Saturday night. I showed up like a good American at 6.30. No one was there, okay? I'm waiting. The church is locked. Finally, the worship team shows up at 7.15. 15 minutes after the service is supposed to start. They start warming up, you know, and, uh, and then the pastor who's leading the service shows up at about quarter to eight, and then the people start showing up. The service finally gets started about a quarter to nine. Oh, it gets worse. I got on to preach at two o'clock in the morning. You see, I quickly learned that punctuality was not part of Peruvian worldview. Okay, now, uh, I was irritated by it, but you know what is part of Peruvian worldview? When you do get there, you are fully present for one another. You're not on your phone being distracted by people who aren't even there. Those people were fully present. And so we can say, well, my worldview is right and theirs is wrong, but we'd be mistaken in that assumption. Here's another example. What's wrong with this map? Well, you think it's upside down, but my friend John Tyson, who's from Australia, says, oh, you finally got it right. Australia is front and center, no longer the down under, but the up top, okay? All right, now, another thing to note about these kinds of maps, how many of you know that these maps have been distorted for years? That the size of the United States and Europe have been increased and Asia and South America and Africa are decreased in size. And if you see a map really to scale, it's a miracle, amazing how tiny the U.S. is compared to the size of the rest of the world. But on our maps, we're huge. Is it any wonder we Americans are the most ethnocentric people on the face of the earth? Because we've been educated into that. And so your worldview impacts your experience of the supernatural. Second concept. Uh, This one's a little tougher. This is by a guy named Paul Hebert. Used to teach here at Trinity. Uh, I had him as a prophet fuller. And uh, he came up with this concept called the flaw of the excluded middle. Let me read it to you and then I'll I'll kind of interpret. Uh, Hebert says this. He was a missionary anthropologist. A growing acceptance of platonic dualism during modernity, the last 500 years, caused the belief in a middle zone to fade away. A new science based on materialistic naturalism emerged. The end result was a secularization of science and a mystification of religion with no connection between those two worlds. Now, let me interpret what Hebert's saying. Hebert is saying is if you're a Westerner and you've been raised in in a Western culture, then what's happened is you believe in the secular realm where you can see and taste and touch and empirically examine things But that has been secularized. God has no place there. And there is a realm out uh, somewhere in heaven where religion is mystified and there's no connection between heaven and earth, which is why he called it the flaw of the excluded middle. In fact, here's a chart uh, that he uses what it looked like. where the transcendent world is way out there and the empirical world is here with God not apart. And what he says is that the connection between those two worlds is absent in the minds of most Westerners. And and this became apparent to him when he was a missionary in India 
And some recent converts came and said, missionary, our kids are sick because our relatives are putting curses on us for deciding to walk with Jesus. Will you pray and break the curses so that our kids can be healed? And here's Hebert, this Western missionary, and he says, okay, I can pray to a God that's out there and I can give you medicine for your kids. But what he understood was that he had a gap. And you know what this is? It's deism. A God who's out there, but is not connected. By the way, I don't think there's a three-tiered universe. I think it's one, and I think it all belongs to God. There's no division between the sacred and the secular, but this is just to illustrate what he saw. And so we have been living with what he called the flaw of the excluded middle. All right, now, let's get practical. Enough seminary. Here's what I want to ask. Why are we not seeing more healing? Why are we not seeing more of the presence and the power of God? How are we missing it? All right, let's hit on worldview one more time. And I want to show you a passage in Scripture and and, and unpack it a little bit. In Acts 14, Paul encounters a worldview that has to be confronted with the kingdom worldview. It says this, In Lystra, there sat a man who was crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. Um, It's worth noting if this guy gets healed, and you know because you've read the book that he does get healed, that it's not just a restorative miracle, it's a rehabilitative miracle because he never walked and he begins to walk. He didn't have to learn to walk, he just starts walking. And so it's, it's pretty awesome what happens here. And he was listening to Paul as he was speaking and Paul looked directly at him, now catch this, saw that he had faith to be healed. No, no, wait a minute. How do you see that somebody has faith to be healed? Was this guy laying on a pallet in the front going, hey, pick me, I want to be prayed for next. No, there's no evidence in the text that's going on. Can I suggest that Paul is operating with spiritual perception? Can I suggest that there's something about his discipleship in the things of God and in the way of Jesus that's missing in our Western models of discipleship? No, isn't it interesting? I think it's possible to have spiritual eyesight, spiritual hearing, spiritual perception. We sing songs about it. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. But we don't include it in our rationalistic Western models of discipleship. So he perceives something. He looks directly at him, saw he had faith to be healed, called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up, began to walk. Now here's where the worldview comes in. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And you know what happens next? They start to worship them. And Paul says, no, 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 stop. We're not gods. You see, they're thinking gods are out here. They don't do the miracles, but they must have come down. Paul says, no, no, I'm not God. Don't worship me. But I preached you a gospel where a supernatural God does the supernatural through ordinary people. And Jesus is the name of the God that we want to talk to you about. And so, uh, hear me. We get too comfortable in our worldview. The kingdom of God wants to confront your worldview. Whether you're from Chicago or New York, we are operating with a worldview that has to be confronted by a supernatural power of the gospel which is called the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of God has come. And so our worldview has to be confronted. And so tonight, I want to suggest to you that most of us have gotten way too comfortable in the worldview we're living in. And it's time for us to get tweaked. Now, you know what happens? We go on a mission trip and we see God do all kinds of crazy stuff. Why? Because it's on that mission trip, our worldview gets dismantled a little bit. Can I suggest it's time to get our worldview dismantled right here? And a time to see God begin to do what he can do. Okay, second thing. I think the limitations of our experience affect our perception of the supernatural. Okay, if you have not seen much, then it's hard to expect much. It's hard to produce what you haven't seen, what you haven't experienced. And, and so if your experience has been limited, it can affect you. Here's the other thing that I deal with. I deal with a lot of kids raised in Pentecostal backgrounds, charismatic backgrounds. Some of them have been abused by faking kind of stuff, the charade of it all. And so as a result, their experience, 
experience has affected their embracing of a supernatural perspective. Now, by the way, I don't think the answer to abuse is disuse. I think it's right use and mature use. But some of us haven't seen anything at all. And as a result, we're not expecting much. Let me give you an example. Um, A few years ago at NIAC, uh, we had um, a friend of mine who's an African-American preacher from California come for a series of meetings. And my friend Terrence, um, he's an amazing man, ordained Christian Missionary Alliance minister, thoroughly orthodox, great theologian. He, he can preach, uh, just an amazing preacher. And, um, and at the end of one of the services, um, he started to call people up for prayer. And we had never seen this happen before. He, the first person he prays for falls over. And the second person he prays for falls over. And we had never seen this happen. In fact, we didn't even know what to do. The first three people just bounced. We didn't even know enough to catch them, okay? We didn't have a theology for this, or we didn't know what was going on. And, and so finally we said, maybe we should catch these people. And uh, so we sent somebody up so they didn't bounce on the gym floor. And, um, and so he's praying for people, and not everyone went down, but some people did. And I was standing in the back, and there was a young girl, she was a preacher's kid from Western PA where I grew up. In fact, I knew her dad very well. She comes running up to me and she grabbed me. And she goes, Dr. Walborn, you need to get up there and stop this. This is not of God. And I said, okay, Kelly, tell me why you don't think this is of God. She said, because I've been in church my whole life and I've never seen anything like this. I go, okay, wait a minute, Kelly. Let me ask you a few questions about your church, okay? Now, I'd been to her church. I knew her dad. I knew her church. And I said, um, when's the last time you saw somebody saved in your church? She goes, oh, I, I can't remember. Okay. When's the last time you saw somebody get baptized at your church? She goes, I, I don't remember that either. In fact, we keep our sound equipment in our baptismal tank. I'm like, oh, that's a nice, safe, dry place for it. Okay. <laughs> and then I said, when's the last time you saw somebody get healed at your church? Oh, no. She said, we don't do that in our church. Now, keep in mind, this is a Christian and Missionary Alliance church we're talking about. We have this thing called the fourfold gospel where we say Jesus is our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. So we have a theology for it, we just don't practice it. Or at least this particular church did not. And so I asked these questions of Kelly, and then I said this. I said, Kel, if your church is the standard for what God is doing on the earth today, I think we're in trouble. She goes, you know, I've been thinking that too. She goes, there's got to be more than this. I go, mm-hmm. I said, I'll tell you what, let's go up and check this out because, please hear me, we still need discernment because just because something's supernatural or spiritual doesn't mean it's God. And, and we have to have discernment to know, is this God? Is this demonic? Is this somebody's emotion? We need discernment, okay? So we go up, and, and there was a young African-American guy kind of laying on the floor, and we pulled up two chairs, and I said, Kelly, let's just pray for him until he comes to, and then we'll find out what's going on. Is Jesus being honored? Is Jesus being glorified? Is there fruit that's coming from this? And so after a few minutes, uh, how many of you can tell, like even when your eyes are closed, you can tell somebody's looking at you? You know, and so this poor, uh, you know, black guy is laying there and he opens up one eye and there's two white people. (laughs) I'm white, in case you missed that. Kelly's white, you know, and he goes, can I help you? (laughs) I go, yeah, we're just praying for you. We just want to see what God's doing. Just keep receiving and we'll talk in a little bit. He goes, okay. So he closes his eyes. About 10 minutes later, he sits up and he begins to tell us, how he'd been running from God, running from his calling, and tonight Jesus called him back. And he starts to cry. He starts to say, I know that there's a call in my life to be a pastor, but I've been thinking I need money. I want to go into business. And tonight I know Jesus is sufficient. He will be my provider. And he's given his testimony. And I'm looking at Kelly, and Kelly's crying. And I go, Kelly, does this sound like Jesus to you? She goes, yes, but it's so weird. And that's where I dropped this one on her. Friends, hear me. We have replaced true spiritual discernment with our comfort zone. Whatever we're comfortable with, that's God. What we're not comfortable with, that's not God. And I got to tell you, that's not discernment. Because the truth is, God's about to demolish all of our comfort zones. This next season that we're going to experience in America is not going to be a comfortable time for the church. But I think it's going to be an incredible time as we're marginalized and we get our prophetic voice back. It's time to recapture spiritual perception and spiritual power. 
And so the limitations of our experience has affected us. Uh, Third, a person's personality or temperament can affect their reception of the supernatural. Okay, so we're not going to do Myers-Briggs right now, but we are going to do Ron's personality test. A real simple one. Um, How many of you, when you get into a pool, you test the water by dipping your toe in it? We're going to call you toe dipper personality type people. Where's our toe dippers, okay? You you, You test, okay. All right. All right, that's one personality type. Now there's a second personality type. You're not a toe dipper. You're what I call, uh, you're a cannonball person. You wait until you see where the toe dippers are, and then you run and you jump and you cannonball splashing the toe dippers. Where's the cannonball people? Okay, all right. Two kind of, you know, different personality types, and I have a word from the Lord for both of you tonight, okay? Toe dipper people. Here's the word. Some of you have been so busy testing the waters, you never get in and swim. And what the Lord is saying is it's time. It's time to get in. It's time to trust me. It's time to get in and swim. Listen, tomorrow we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Tomorrow night we're going to pray for healing. And it's not just going to be, you know, a few select people praying. We're going to pray. The body of Christ is going to pray. Because guess what? There's only one healer in the body of Christ. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is the healer, and he's here. And so we're, we're going to do some things that's going to stretch you, but I want to encourage you toe dippers to get in and swim. Now, cannonball people. I have a word from the Lord for you, too. Some of us have jumped into pools that have no water. <laughs> and as a result, we've broken our legs, we've broken our arms, and we've got abused, we got, we got beaten up. And, and, and as a result, we're hesitant even to get in. So we need discernment, but we also need to get in and learn how to swim. And so our personality can impact our perception and reception of the spiritual power. Uh, Fourth, our will. This is a key one for spiritual leaders. If you perceive you have something to lose when things begin to change, then you will resist that new move of the Spirit. So for instance, the people that most resisted Jesus were the ones that had the most to lose in terms of their religious power and prestige. And can I suggest that when revival breaks out on the other side of town at another church, often the church that has most recently been renewed does a sermon series as to why that's not really God. Because if that is, we have something to lose. When I started teaching at Nyack, I introduced a course called Divine Healing, and we started to pray for the sick. And I used to, I, I sent students out to pray in the communities, and we started to see some amazing things. I still teach it at both the seminary and the college. But I had a Bible professor who had been my Bible prof come to me, and, and he got a little upset, and he goes, Ron, if what you're teaching is true, I've wasted my life. And I looked at him, and I said, you haven't wasted your life. I said, you taught me the word. You taught me theology. I said, I I owe a lot to you. And he goes, you don't understand. I have been teaching a truncated gospel while I have a theology for it. I don't believe that we should practice it. And he goes, and I'm starting to think I'm wrong. And I said, well, what are you going to do about that? He goes, it's too late. I'm in my late sixties. I go, it's not too late. In fact, why don't you after every class, why don't you ask students to stay that would like to be prayed for? And why don't you start praying for healing? Because they all love you and respect you. You know what that guy did at the age of 67? He started closing his Bible and theology classes by saying, we're going to pray for healing before we leave. And you know what? Kids started to get healed. Now, he could have resisted. He could have become my most vocal opponent on that campus. But you know what? To his credit, he says, I'm not going to let my will stop me from moving into what God is doing. And so we have to decide. Are we going to resist what God's doing? Listen, when I became a seminary dean, I made a decision. I said, Lord, I'm going to be the most radical seminary dean. I, I don't want to get comfortable in my position. I want the kingdom to come. I want your will to be done. I want healing. I want deliverance. I want everything the New Testament says. I don't want to betray 12-year-old Ron who said to his dad, if you could get some of this stuff going here, this church would grow. And so it's time, okay? Finally, our sin, the sin factor. In fact, some of you have been saying, yeah, that's my issue. I got sin in my life. That's why I don't see it. Well, I got news for you. Uh, I got good news and bad news for you. Uh, the good news, the bad news, yes, there's sin in your life. In fact, the scripture says there's sin in your life. It says, if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But here's the good news. There's grace for your sin. 
and you don't have to hide it anymore. And God has a long history of using broken people who still are not sinlessly perfect because we're not going to be sinlessly perfect until we get to glory. But I think the real issue is the sin we're hiding. And I had a woman in my church when I was pastoring in California. She called herself a prophetic intercessor, and she frightened me. And, uh, and she used to come to me and get these prophetic words, and I knew she had a word when her finger would shake, okay? And she came up to me one day, and she would go into King James language, okay? And, and, and I needed an interpreter, okay? And uh, she comes up to me, and her finger was shaking, and she says, Pastor, the Lord hath revealed to me that there's sin in the camp. And I went, Duh. And I don't think my response pleased her because her fingers started to shake harder and the King James got thicker and she said, thus saith the Lord, there's sin in the camp. And I said, duh, I'm sorry, but that's why we need his grace every day because there's always sin in the camp. The problem really isn't the sin in the camp. The problem is the sin we bury under the tent of our life. What are you hiding? Yeah, she uh, actually left the church shortly after that, which I was okay with because every healthy body eliminates. Um, Sorry, you'll get that later. Apologies. It, that works in New York. Sorry. Especially the Bronx. Um, <laughs> but listen, guys, God has a long history of using broken people. And so it, it, it's where we take the veil off. It's where we say, Lord, um, I, I want to be honest about who I am. He loves to flow through broken people in amazing ways. All right. Well, let me close. And... Uh, Here's what I want to close with. We, we need a paradigm shift is what we're talking about. We need our eyes open so that we can see the invisible realm. We need our hearts undivided and unencumbered. And, and I know some of you have seen this picture before. Now in this picture, there is both a young woman and an older woman. How, how many of you see both? Okay. Um, and for those of you that don't see, let me, let me help you. Okay. So the older woman is looking this way, and here's her nose, and there's her eye, and that's her mouth, okay? And she has like a shawl over her head, okay? The younger woman, young, beautiful woman, is looking away from me, as young, beautiful women tend to do, okay? <laughs> you laugh just a little too hard at that, okay? Okay, and, and she's looking this way, and that's kind of the tip of her nose, and there's a feather coming out the front of her, you know, hat or whatever that is, and, and that's her ear, and this is her neck, and hopefully that's a necklace and somebody hasn't slit her throat, okay? You know, but, okay, you, you see it, right? <laughs> All right, listen, they're both there, but if you don't have eyes to see it, you miss it. Here's another way of viewing it. Uh, a few years ago, we needed a new car, and my wife said, honey, you always get to pick the cars. I want to pick our car this time. I said, okay, what kind of a car do you want? She said, I want a Volvo. I went, ooh, that sounds expensive, okay? And so we went shopping. I found a used Volvo. Any of you guys ever had a Volvo? They're awesome. They're great cars, okay? We drive that Volvo off the lot, and all of a sudden, I see Volvos everywhere. I mean, there'd like been a sale on Volvos. They're just, uh, I mean, here's the thing. They had always been there, but I did not have eyes to see. Friends, I believe God wants to remove our blinders. I think he wants to help us with our Western rationalism, with our scientific naturalism. I think he wants to critique our worldview and the modernity we've been soaking in with the gospel of the kingdom, with the rule and reign of God. And I think he wants to open our eyes to see what is here, but what we've been missing. Let me tell you one final story and then we'll pray. In 1987, I was pastoring a, a little church in Connecticut. And I, I was burning out, and I'll tell you more of this story tomorrow, and I was ready to give up ministry. And um, I, I said to my wife, if there's not some more power somewhere, I'm done. I can't do this. I'm going to go teach high school. Uh, and, um, and, and out of the blue, my elders in this little church sent me to a conference in California. Now, I was in Connecticut, and they sent me to the left coast, okay? The west coast, but I called it the left coast because I'm an east coast guy, Okay. And, uh, and I, I mean, I, I was a little nervous about going to California, land of fruits and nuts, okay? Now, now I've since lived there for 10 years, and I, and I know it's true. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I mean, I love California now, but I would go out to this conference, and I got to tell you, this was not a Christian and Missionary Alliance conference. The title of the conference was Signs and Wonders and the Kingdom of God. 
But a lot of people connected with Fuller Seminary were teaching at it. And so there was good theology and it was good teaching and it appealed to my evangelical sensibility. But all week long they were saying, there's gotta be more. We can recover our spiritual inheritance. And all week long, good teaching and, and, uh, and yet an expectancy that God wanted to do miracles. And so on Tuesday night, there was a teaching on healing. And, and this guy gave this incredible sermon on, on Jesus the healer, made it very clear that he wasn't a healer, that Jesus was the only healer, Jesus was the superstar, and that we were going to pray, but there was not going to be a prayer line in the front with special people praying, but we were going to have people stand, and we were going to gather around them, and we were going to pray because Jesus was the healer. I went, okay, this is good theology. I can, I can do this. Well, a guy stands up in front of me, and he says, I'd like prayer, and he has a tumor on his back underneath his right shoulder blade. And, you know, some people gather around him, and then he pulls his shirt up to show us the tumor. I mean, we'd never done this kind of stuff in church before, and I was kind of a little grossed out by it. Um, and, and so the people gather around this guy, and, you know, they, they begin to pray. Now, here's where it got awkward for me. I did not pray in tongues. I'm not sure I believed in tongues at that point. In fact, I'd had a Puerto Rican Pentecostal roommate from the Bronx and when I was going to college that prayed in tongues and I punched him for it, okay? So that's kind of where I was coming from, all right? So these people, they start going, she bought a Honda, she bought a Yamaha, okay? <laughs> I tie my bow tie, I untie my bow tie, you know? And I immediately step to the side, okay? just to get away in case lightning strikes, all right? And I move over to the side and I assume this position. Okay, now this is a position we teach in seminary. (laughs) If you have no idea what's going on, if you just stand (laughs) and rock like this, you'll at least look spiritual. And you're probably laughing because you've seen your pastor do this, okay? (laughs) Yeah, they, they teach it out here too, okay? So I'm, I'm standing like this, and I'm kind of rocking back and forth, and, and I had a friend with me, another CMA pastor, and all of a sudden, the weirdest thing happened. My right hand got hot, burning hot, and I turned to my friend, and I go, my hand just got hot, <laughs> and I said it just a little bit too loud because this woman who was leading the prayer time, she goes, well, that's because you're supposed to lay your hand on the tumor. <laughs> now, what immediately went through my head was, there's no freaking way I'm touching that tumor, <laughs> But before, before I could get those words out of my mouth, she grabs my hand and sticks it on this bare tumor. The guy has his shirt up, and uh, now my hand's on his tumor. This, by the way, this was in February of 1987, 31 years ago. I can remember it like it was yesterday. My hand's on the tumor, and they're, all, they're looking at me like, pray. So here's what I pray. Dear Lord Jesus, all I have is English. That's how I led, okay? They're all rolling their eyes like, okay, Lord, if you heal on that prayer, you are the God of miracles, okay? (laughs) And I remember my next line. Dear Lord, all I have is English, but I do believe, Jesus, you are the healer. And I prayed something else, just obedience. There wasn't a lot of faith or or what some would call anointing. I, I was just being obedient as best I could. And all of a sudden, I felt that tumor shrink under my hand. And they went nuts. Yabba dabba doo, they're going crazy, you know. But I I sit down in a chair and I'm going, and it was not tongues, it was my paradigm just, my comfort zone exploding. I sat down, I grabbed my journal, and they were going nuts, and there was a tiny little mark where this tumor had, gained, had, had been, but it was gone. And I, in my journal, I wrote eight pages on how this happened. Maybe in the heat of the moment, the place wasn't that air-conditioned, it was really hot. Maybe his lymph system drained the fluid from the tumor. Do you know why? Because even though I was a preacher's kid, I went to a Christian college. I was probably two semesters away from a Master of Divinity degree. Uh, you know, I was, I was already a pastor, um, I was a naturalist. I, I'd been raised in the church. But this kind of stuff, it happened in the Bible, but I had been taught not to believe it for today. Folks, that night changed my world forever. I have never gone to church the same way again. 
always expecting God to show up, not just at church, but in grocery stores and wherever I go. Why? Because he really is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still the healer. He is still the God of the miraculous. And I think it's about time for us to begin to say, God, forgive me. I've made you too small in my eyes. Open my eyes. Let me see what you want to do. Would you stand with me? So, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for that moment for me in 1987 when my paradigm began to open up, when my comfort zone got demolished. But I thank you that you have been faithful to do that over and over again. The Lord, you don't want us to get comfortable. We are strangers and aliens in this world. We are citizens of a very, very different kingdom. And so we ask, God, that you would forgive us where we have grown comfortable and embraced the status quo. And yes, Lord, we're torn because we need to contextualize the gospel and we've got to learn how to communicate in the times and the seasons in which we live. Lord, we get that. But Lord, we are also to be a little disjointed in this world because we really don't fit. And we carry, Father, the supernatural presence of a God who loves to disturb the reality. And so tonight, Spirit of the living God, we ask that you'd fall fresh on us this weekend. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and awaken that which has started to slumber within us. Come and ignite a fire, a passion. Lord, awaken that cry in our heart, even that cry that the 12-year-old boy Ron had when I was a preacher's kid, and I said, God, there's got to be more than this. Uh, Awaken even what Kelly began to see. It's got to be better than this. There's got to be more. And so we say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Do a work in us. Even as we look at theology tomorrow, I, I pray that you would awaken us, not just in our minds, but in our spirits. I pray that you'd awaken right now a hunger. God, would you fill me? Would you touch me? Would you anoint me for the mission of God that you have for me? And we'll thank you. We'll give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.